0: As I said, we're reading Genesis together, and um, one of the reasons that we're looking at the life of Abraham together is that uh, three of the world's greatest religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all look to Abraham as the father of their faith. Over half of the world looks at this man as the father of their faith. So there's something about him that um, people from all over the world look to and say, this is There's something remarkable about this man. There's something about him that I want to emulate, something about him that I want to be true of my life. Um, He had a confidence as he walked through life. He had a real anchor. He was anchored in a way that I want to be anchored. So I was thinking today about um, the reality of uh, pain and suffering and storms in our lives, and I uh, was looking at song lyrics and I'm not an Imagine Dragons fan, but I was looking at some Imagine Dragons lyrics. Um, and one of their songs, Believer, uh, it, it, one of the lyrics goes like this. I'm fired up and tired of the way things have been. I'm the one at the sail. I'm the master of, this, of my sea. And then later in the song, he says, my life, my love, my drive. It came from the pain. And what he's acknowledging in the song is, is the reality that um, all of us experience pain. All of us experience suffering. And then the, the midst of the winds and the waves of this life, all of the storms that buffer, buffet us, um, the singer says that uh, he is the one at the sail. He is the master of his sea. But what we're going to see when we look at Abraham is that Abraham actually had an anchor that was outside of him. He had an anchor, a real anchor. So a question for you, what do you do when the wind and the waves of life come against you? What do you do in the storms of life? Some of you haven't had to weather a real storm yet in your life. Others of you really have. Um, Either way, they will come. Um, I've heard it said that all of us are either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or entering a storm. Everyone in this life is either damp or wet. And when storms come, doubts follow quickly behind. We have spiritual doubts on the tail end of storms. And and all of us struggle with doubt. No one is immune to this. And Abraham helps us to ask and answer the question, how do I live by faith in the midst of my doubt? And so our outline for tonight, is on your handout. We're going to look at the anatomy of doubt, um, and then how God deals with doubt, and then spend some time applying this to us. So first, the anatomy of doubt. We're going to look at the first, first, first eight verses for this. And the passage begins after these things. So if you've been with us this semester, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 14, which is the passage right before this. And Abraham um, goes to rescue his nephew, Lot. And his Lot has been carried off by these four kings, or rather these, these tribal warlords. And Abraham goes after on this military conquest, um, rescues Lot from the kings and comes back. And uh, he states this military campaign to get his nephew back. And now he's scared. Right? He's scared of retaliation. And God speaks to him. He says, do not fear, fear not, don't be afraid. And it's interesting that Abraham, what what happens here in verse one, Abraham's the only person in the Pentateuch in the first five books of the Bible who God speaks to this way. It says that the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. The only person who receives the word of the Lord in a vision, God appears to him in a vision and tells him, do not fear. And how does Abram respond? He tells Abram how scared he is. Verse 2 and 3, he just unloads on God all of his worries, all of this stuff that was buried deep down. He's asking God, that child that you promised me, where is he? Right? It's fascinating that the response to God's revelation. Right? We often think if I could talk to God face to face, then all my doubts would go away. The, the response to God's revelation is doubt. And then God responds in verse 4 and he says, don't worry he takes him outside he leads him out it's nighttime they look up at the stars and he says look and and he shows them the stars in the sky and God responds to Abram's doubt with this warm loving um, you can kind of picture like a father with his arm around his son this like encouraging sign I wonder if this is if the writers of Lion King were thinking about this in the scene with Mufasa and Simba out under the sky Um, God takes Abram outside and shows him the stars he says this is what you're your nation will be like the children that come from you they will be more more than the stars in the sky uncountable multitude and we're told that abraham then believes god and god counts it to him as righteousness but then in verse 8 more doubts abraham says how can i know i'm just filled with doubts how can i be certain how can i know and i hope this is i hope this encourages you Because Abraham is showing us that doubt is inevitable. Here's Abraham. He's having this one-on-one conversation with God. Personal, verbal communication. God gives him a sign. He shows him the stars. And Abraham responds with doubt. And this means for you that your doubt is not just because you're in college. It's not just because that particular thing happened to you. It's not because of your particular circumstances. Doubt really never goes away. If you don't believe me, think about Abraham. Right? This is a man who is, by this point, deep into his faith, deep into his life of walking with God. Right? He's left his home, his family, his culture, everything that told him who he was. He would left and he went out with God. Um, and he's had this life with God left everything for the sake of following God, staked everything on God's promise. He's had a word from the Lord. God has spoken to him, received a vision from God, and he still has doubt. And this means for us that we are never going to get past this. Doubt doubt never goes away. Um, I don't know how this sits with you. I I hope this doesn't disappoint you. I hope that you find this comforting. Uh, this This has been really comforting for me today as I've been thinking about it. And in spite of these two revelations from God, Abraham responds with these questions. How can I know? How can I trust? Um, I still got a head full of doubt. How can I know? And look at how God's response. Like God does not respond by saying, how dare you question me? Right? He, um, He also doesn't respond by saying, hey, that's just the way it is. We all live with doubt. We can't help it. Instead, God deals with doubt in a unique way. He doesn't condemn it and he also doesn't let it go. Um, And Tim Keller, the pastor, took some time, um, he takes some time to articulate what he describes as the anatomy of doubt. And I want to share this with you. Um, He says that what's going on here is very much like what happens with Jesus and Thomas. That at the end of John's gospel, um, Jesus, after he's resurrected from the dead, he reveals himself. He appears to his disciples, all but Thomas. And they, they meet Jesus, And then Thomas is with the other disciples and he says, I'm not going to believe. I can't believe unless I actually see Jesus face to face and actually put my hand in his wounds. I won't believe unless Jesus shows me his wounds. And then Jesus appears and says to Thomas, come, put your hand in my wounds. Put your hand in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And when Jesus appears to him, he invites him to touch and he says, stop disbelieving. Stop doubting and believe. And what we see here is this fascinating balance in which doubt is, it's never encouraged, but doubters are completely welcomed and engaged with. Now, there's two ways that we usually deal with doubt. Um, One is from the liberal mindset and the other is from the conservative mindset. So the conservative mindset first. This says that doubt is a complete evil. Doubt is a total failure failure, the conservative mindset creates communities and churches where no one is allowed to talk about doubt. No one is allowed to express their doubts or their emotional struggles with the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And when you create a community or a church like that, you're telling the world that you cannot be emotionally or intellectually authentic and be a Christian. And lots of people have been turned off by how unattractive that is. And not only that, people inside those churches and those communities who have doubts are so scared by them, and they feel so self-condemned by them, they ever, never actually go and look for answers. And some of you were raised in churches or communities like that. And many of your classmates here at Wake grew up in churches and communities like that. And then you get to Wake, and for the first time, you're encouraged to doubt and to critique everything you were taught. You get to Wake, and you meet the other extreme, the liberal mindset on doubt. And before we get there, I want to go back to Abraham. What if Abraham had had the conservative mindset with doubt, and he said to God, I don't have any doubts? Well, then we wouldn't have the second half of this chapter. And the second half of this chapter is one of the greatest things ever done in history. There is no greater chapter in the Bible that talks about the grace of the gospel. No greater chapter. When you express doubt and you say, my faith is weak, instead of God saying, how dare you? He says to you, this is actually the way that you drop your anchor down into the bedrock. This is how you weather the storms. Give me your doubts. I will come to you. I will give you more. Give me your doubts. See, the conservative approach to doubt is wrong because God doesn't condemn Abraham and his doubts. God deals with him. He welcomes him and deals with him. But the liberal approach to doubt is wrong, too. The liberal approach says that it is intellectually sophisticated and emotionally mature to always be in doubt about everything, to be skeptical and cynical of everything, to have unresolved, eternal doubt about everything. And here at Wake, you're really just presented these two options, right? One is championed, one is condemned. And here's the thing, the liberal approach to doubt doesn't work either. Because if you doubt everything, What you're really doing is you're actually giving yourself an exception that's not fair. Because you can only doubt everything if you refuse to doubt your doubts. You can only be cynical to everything if you refuse to be cynical of your cynicism. What do I mean by this, that you have to be cynical of your cynicism? Well, you have to at least be open to the possibility that you're really just a coward. That underneath the veneer of cynicism and skepticism is actually cowardice, that you're afraid If you can be cynical of everything but your own cynicism, then you're giving everyone else something that you're not willing to try for yourself. If you're not willing to doubt your own doubts or be cynical of your own cynicism, you're actually being intellectually dishonest and cowardly. This is what you're doing if you doubt everything but your own doubts. You're just showing that you can dish it out, but you can't take it. Now, God doesn't do the liberal thing of saying that that's fine, you have doubts. He goes after them. And God doesn't do the conservative thing of saying, how dare you doubt? Instead, he says, doubters are welcome. Because being honest about your weakness and how difficult it is to believe, this is how you become like Abraham. Now, if you are willing to be cynical of your cynicism, if you're willing to start looking at your doubts, willing to start doubting your doubts, which is something that Wake Forest students don't want to do, If you're willing to start doubting your doubts, you'll see that there's actually two components to doubt. And you see them here in Genesis 15 in the two objections that Abraham gives. Um, The first one is in verses 2 and 3. Abraham says, what can you give me? You have given me no children. And the second objection of doubt is in verse 8 when Abraham says, oh Lord God, how am I to know? How shall I possess it? So do you hear the dominant words in both of those doubts? See, under all of our intellectual objections, out of, under all the intellectual objections that people have to Christianity, there are these two fundamental components. And the intellectual objections are real and legitimate. And if you want to talk about these, if you have objections to the Christian faith that you want to talk about, um, I would love to sit down with you over coffee and listen to you um, because I know that these questions are real and significant, questions that you may have about hell and suffering or sexuality or science, slavery, the Bible's view of women. like there, there are lots of things that are legitimate objections and obstacles that I believe the Bible has compelling answers for. I would love to sit down with you and talk through these. But underneath these intellectual objections, there's actually these two fundamental components. In the first, we're saying, how can I know about God? How can I know you, God? Like, lots of people don't want to believe in God because if they do, they'll have to give up control to God. If this is you, know that there are lots of us who do believe in God who are still scared of that. Right? We don't know if we can trust him. We don't know if we can give away control. We're afraid that we don't know if he's going to make us do things that we don't want to do or do things that will hurt us or do things that will give us empty and miserable lives. This is the first component of doubt. How can I know about you, God? And there's another problem that keeps us from entering into a relationship with God and having a life that is anchored. And the second component is how can I know about me? One reason a person would be afraid of entering into a relationship with God and, and they hide behind intellectual doubts is because they don't trust God. And the other reason is that they don't don't know if they trust themselves. They don't know about me. I don't know about me. I don't know if I can keep it up. I don't know if I can do it. I mean, do you know what I've done? Do you know what I'm capable of doing? I don't know about you, um, uh, but that, th- those, are the two, those are the two components of doubt. And God deals with both of these in the second half of the chapter, and he does this in a beautiful, stunning way. In order to see how God deals with this, we're going to have to do a little bit of work. Um, I want you to see this. Because nothing God says convinces Abraham. Right? He, he speaks to him again and again, and Abraham is still filled with doubt. So what does God do? Look at verse 9 and 10. God, God says to Abraham, give me some animals. Go get me these animals and these birds and bring them to me. And, the, and then Abraham goes and he gets these animals, and we're told that he cuts them in half, and he lays them out in a particular way on the ground except for the birds. And the interesting thing here is that God doesn't tell Abraham what to do with the animals, right? He just tells him to go and get them, which means that Abraham knew what God was talking about. Abraham and God know what is going on here. We don't know what's going on, but Abraham and God know what's going on. And here's what's going on. God, when he said, go get some animals, Abraham knew that God was talking about a covenant, a binding, solemn contract. And so in order to understand this, we need to see that there's there's ways in which we're similar to Abraham and there's also ways that we're different from Abraham. Um, So one of the ways that we're different is that Abraham lived in an oral culture and we live in a written culture. So we live in an oral storytelling culture. We live in a written culture. But one of the ways that we're similar is that like Abraham, we have contracts. So for example, imagine with me that I get a phone call from some number I don't recognize, which never happens, right? Um, Some number I don't recognize, I pick up And it turns out it's an iPhone salesman. And this is all hypothetical. This doesn't happen. Um, iPhone salesman says, hey, I wanna sell you an iPhone 11 Pro for $200. And I say, that sounds like a great deal. And they say, great, just give me your credit card information and I'll send you the phone. So me, I trust this guy on the phone. I give him my credit card information. They send me a phone in the mail and I get my bill and they charge me $2,000, let's say. Um, My friends respond to me, I get this, and they say, John, you're an idiot, right? Why didn't you get that written down? Like, why didn't you have them write down and sign the deal and actually make a contract, right? If you had put this on paper, if you had gotten the, the fake iPhone salesman guy to write this down and put it on paper, then you could have done something about it. You could have taken that to a judge. There'd be consequences for it. You could hold him to it. There'd be consequences for him breaking that promise. See, in a written culture, when we write things done, that's when we have consequences. I mean, what I should have said when I answered that imaginary phone call is I should have said, Oh, great spamming iPhone salesman, how can I know that you will sell me the iPhone Pro for $200? How can I live with the doubts I have about you? How can I sleep in peace? How can I live in peace? How can I live with my doubts? And then the iPhone salesman would say, I know, I will sign. I will sign a contract for you. I'm, I'm willing to pay a penalty if I fail to do what I'm saying to do. I'll follow through with the penalty, and I'll pay the penalty. And if I see him do that, I'll say, oh, okay, All right, you understand how contracts work. Well, Abraham worked not in a written culture like us, but in an oral culture, a storytelling culture. And the way they made contracts was they acted them out ritually. They dramatized the consequences of breaking the covenant. So in one way, they're just like us, right? In other words, you've got to find a way to make the promiser accountable to pay the penalty. Then we can know, then we know he's going to come through. So, but what are the animals about? In Jeremiah 34, 18, this other sort of cryptic text, um, it says this, he says, "'This is what the Lord says, you have not obeyed me, "'and when men who violated my covenant "'and have not fulfilled the terms they made, "'I will treat like the calf they cut into "'and walk between the pieces.'" I'll hand them over to their enemies and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. See, this is how you made a covenant in those days. Take these animals and then lay them out, cut them in half and then lay them out and then you would walk between the pieces. And what you're doing is you're actually ritually identifying with these dead animals and saying that you're acting out the consequence. Like if I break my end of the covenant, what's happened to the animals will happen to me. Right? This is a much more dramatic thing than writing a piece of pa- on a piece of paper. This is how they acted out the covenant. You're saying, if I break my end of the deal, may I be cut off, may I be cut up, may my flesh be thrown to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. You're doing the same thing that every responsible iPhone salesman does. Right? You make yourself accountable for paying the penalty for failure to fill your, your promise. And as you can imagine, this is a really effective way of making a deal. Like I wonder if you can imagine next time you're dividing up group work for a group project, um, setting this out as the term, suggesting your promise, your partners try this instead. Right? People would actually probably do their end of the work, do their job. Um, right, this is a really effective way of communicating a promise, and this method of of cutting covenants was so effective that it was always done in this time between a great king and vassals or servants, the people they'd make covenants with. And it was so prevalent in the ancient Near East, that it it's actually in the language in the Hebrew. The, word, the verb to make a covenant is this word cut, to cut a covenant, right? Because cutting is how you made a covenant. You cut the animals in half. Blood would run down the aisle in between the pieces walking through those split pieces, the promise, the person who's making the promise was making a self-maledictory oath, right? You did this when you were a kid. Cross my heart, hope to die, put a needle in my eye, right? That's a self-maledictory oath. This is what they were doing when they made these covenants. What happens to those animals will happen to me. If I don't do everything I say I'm gonna do today, may this be true of me. So Abraham would have completely understood this. When God said, go get the animals and cut them up, Abraham would have understood what God was going to do. And he would have thought, this is really good. Now, there are two things that God does in this, in verse 17 and 18, that would have utterly astounded Abraham. First, look who passes through. Look who passes through the animals. In verse 17, we see, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, we have to go up back to verse 12 and explain the setting. See, we see in verse 12 that as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And he has this great and dreadful darkness that falls on him. Well, what's, what's going on with this darkness? Well, the word dreadful here, this literally means that when it's getting physically dark outside, this darkness of dread fell on him, a darkness of horror. As the sun was setting, something else was happening. There's this, this darkness of terror and horror falling on Abraham. I mean, this made me think of in Harry Potter, like the, the presence of the Dementors. Like when they entered into someone's presence, the horror and the dread and the coldness and the fear that fell on them. The darkness that fell on Abraham wasn't physical darkness. The sun doesn't set until verse 17. It's this, this other darkness, this overwhelming sense of dread and horror that, that crushes him to the ground so that he can't get up this incredible heaviness over everything he's doing. And he had no idea what was coming. And then what appears is this blazing torch and smoking fire pot. Smoke and fire appear. And commentators agree that what's happening here, this this smoke and fire together, this is the same thing that happens on the top of Mount Sinai when God reveals himself to his people there um, the smoke and fire. This is the same thing that appears to, God, to God's people when God leads his children out of slavery in Egypt through the wilderness. He appears to them as this pillar of smoke and fire. Smoke and fire together, this is the emblem of God's actual glory presence with his people. It's a lightning strike appearing and holding its shape. And with all of its sparks and thunder and smoke and fire, it goes down the aisle formed by the pieces. And it speaks and it says, I will give you this land. And Abraham would have been speechless because there's only one thing that this could mean. This is God saying, Abraham, you want to know how you can know? Do you want to know what I'm like? If I don't bless you, if I don't keep my end of the deal, if I don't keep all of these wild, huge promises that I've made to you, may I become like these animals? May I be cut up, may I be cut off, may I die. This is amazing, and this isn't all that God does, because this only answers half our doubts. This only answers the question, how can I know about God? Would we still have the other half of the problem? How can I know about me? If you're anything like me, you look at that, and you say, that's incredible, but you're God. I wasn't really ever worried about you keeping up your end of the deal, right? God, you wanted to enter a covenant with me, saying you will be my people, I will be your God, and I know that you'll come through. I know that you'll take the penalty if you, if you fail to come through. I know that you'll be my God, but I don't know if I can be your person. Like I don't know if I want to enter into a relationship like this. I don't know if I can walk out there in life and try to live according to these principles because I know that I'm going to fail. I know I'm going to let you down. I know I'm going to let me down. Right, this is like the, This is the breakup conversation. It's not you, it's me. Um, but it's an honest, like, it's not about you, God. You, you clearly can keep your end of the deal. It really is about me. This is, I'm the reason this, that this relationship can't happen. And here's the thing. God understands your doubts. He knows this about you. And this is why the second thing happens. After God goes through the pieces in verse 18, after this, this fire smoke goes through the pieces, it says that on that day, the covenant was made. That means it's over. It's done. It's done. So the first surprising thing is that God is the one who goes through the pieces, but the second surprising thing is who doesn't go through the pieces. Now, in the ancient Near East, when a great king would make a a covenant with a vassal, with a servant, he would force the servant to go through the pieces, right? Because he's making this, he has all the power in the relationship, so he would say, I'm not... I'm not going through this. You're going through this. If you mess up your end of the deal, then, then this will happen to you. But I'm the great king. I'm not going through this. And occasionally there were kings, um, history and, and archeology span shows us that there records that there were kings who were, who were kind kings, who were nice kings, that they would go through as well, that the, the vassal would go through the pieces and the great king would go through as well. And um, he would say, hey, I'll hold up my end of the deal too. Um, but this is the only covenant that historians and archeologists know of in which the king alone goes through the pieces and then says the covenant is made. What could this mean? God is saying, Abraham, I will bless you. No matter whether I fail, I will pay the penalty. No matter if you fail, I will pay the penalty. I will absorb the cost for both of us, either of us, including you. This is a one-sided covenant. God passes through the animals for both he and Abraham. This is unbelievable. This is God's way of saying, I will be torn apart if I fail or I will be torn apart if you fail. If you fail, I will take the consequences. I will take the penalty. I will do it. And Abraham had no idea the cost of this oath of grace. But centuries later, a darkness would come down again and it was so dark and so dreadful that it put out the sun at noon. Mark 15, 35 says at the sixth hour, which is noon, darkness came down, complete and total darkness. And this darkness engulfed the cross. This, this darkness engulfed Mount Calvary. And on the cross, what happened to Jesus? When he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What happened to Jesus? Isaiah 53 6 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. This is covenant language. This is the curse. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, I'm in the dark and I'm alone and you have cut me off. Why? This is God saying, I am going to bless you unconditionally. If you believe in me, if you enter into this relationship with me, not only will I not fail, my failures failures will not get in the way of me blessing you, but your failures won't get in the way of me blessing you. This is the reason why when Paul is meditating on Abraham in his letter to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 3.14, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us all through Jesus Christ, becoming the curse for us. So finally, what does this mean for us? Like, Just thinking through um, some application for us. What does this mean for us? Everything in your life will require you to walk through the pieces. Everything you give yourself to will make you walk down that aisle for yourself. Every other approach to living says, this will be my shield, this will be my reward, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to be a moral person, or a successful person, or a liberated person, or a self-actualized person, or a conservative person, or a liberal person. Um, I'm going to do these things, and it's on me to make them happen. Every other approach to living will make you walk through the pieces. You will be responsible for your end of the deal. But if you fail, you won't be able to live up to the standards. You will fail. You won't be able to live up to the standards, regardless of who sets them. If you really look deep down within yourself, you know that you're not going to come through. You can't keep up that high standard that's set for you. You're going to have to walk through the aisle. But Abraham is different. He's like a man with an anchor. Hebrews 6.13 says that when God made this promise to Abraham, God swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. So he confirmed it with an oath. And it says that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. So if you have lots of doubts, if you're thinking, man, I've got lots of doubts. I'm afraid of giving myself to God. I want you to see that you actually can't avoid giving yourself to something, right? Your anchor is down in something. All of us have our anchor down in something. You say, like, if I have that thing, then I'll be okay, right? You set your anchor in your friends, or in your abilities, or in your future, or in your looks, or your academics, or something. You always set your anchor down in something. You always anchor yourself to something. When I was in high school, I took a, um, a sailing trip with uh, the Boy Scouts down to the Bahamas. And on this trip, we, uh, it was a cool Boy Scout trip, um, uh, we, on this trip, we would set down our anchor at night, and then we had to keep watch throughout the evening, or out throughout the whole night, we'd take these three-hour watches. And during that time, we were watching, one, to make sure no one bumped into us, but second, to make sure that our anchor didn't drag, because we were just dropping anchor down in the sand. We didn't have any, anything solid to drop it on, and so if it didn't actually catch, um, we would need to be aware if we were, if we were drifting. Um, constantly, I think we'd like check the compasses and the stars, I don't remember how we did it. Uh, But somehow, we checked to make sure that we weren't moving, weren't drifting. Your anchor is useless unless it's secure. And if your anchor is in sand and something that's not secure like ours was, you're going to have to watch it vigilantly to to make sure it's not slipping. So what do you think will always be there for you? What are you putting your anchor down in? And is it secure? Or are you worried that it's going to slip? If you say... If you say, I don't want to give myself to the promise of God, but you're giving yourself to something and it's sand, you're just going to drift. Whatever it is, it isn't going to last. Like maybe it's a relationship. If I get into that, if I get into a good relationship, but that won't hold you. Um, Is it your looks or your athletic ability, your grades, your future, your career? Like none of these will hold you. Everyone puts their anchor down into something. And unless it's the promise of God, something that will never change. You will never live with the confidence that you long for. Your anchor will just skip along the ocean floor and you'll never feel steady. You will live in fear of the anchor slipping or if you have the naive confidence that it will never slip, once a storm comes, that storm will shipwreck your life. But here is something that is sure that can hold your anchor, that can keep you tethered when the wind and the waves and the storms of life toss you about. Here is something that will never leave you or forsake you. Something that passed through the aisle for you, between those pieces. When God says, I am your shield, he's saying, he's saying, unless you have me, you don't have a shield. Unless I'm your security, you have no real security. Right? You've got to see this, that when you get your anchor down deep enough, there's a lot of pressure on that anchor. You all know the pressure that's on that anchor. But that anchor holds. Because when Jesus Christ went down under the wrath of God and under the justice of God, he stayed. He held for you. He held for you. And he walked through those divided pieces for you so that you don't have to. If you're here tonight and you're afraid of giving yourself to God, I just want to leave you with this question Um, Why aren't you afraid of not? Um, Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the life of Abraham. Lord, thank you that he shows us what security looks like. Lord, um, I confess I long for for my anchor to drop down deeper, to have this security and confidence in you and your promises. And I pray that for my friends too. Lord, would uh, would you do this? Would you show us? Would you uncover our doubts that we can share them with you? So that you can further show us and reveal to us the security of your promise, this anchor that will hold. Lord Jesus Christ, you crucified and risen for us, that you pass through the pieces so that we don't have to. Lord, help us. We pray in Christ's name, Amen. If you all want to stand up.